0: and welcome to Books in Literary Studies. My name is Miranda Corcoran, and today I am delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Nick Admussen, author of Recite and Fuse: Contemporary Chinese Prose Poetry, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2016. So Nick, I guess I wanted to begin by finding out a little bit more about you, perhaps a little bit about your background, and what drew you to such a fascinating topic?
1: Hi Miranda, thank you so much for having me. It's a real it's a real pleasure.
0: It's great to have you here.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, I am a fourth or fifth year. I can't remember. I guess at this point, uh, assistant professor of Chinese literature and culture at, at Cornell. Uh, and uh, I was uh, I come from a I guess an English literature Chinese language hybrid background, um, and did. Uh, um, a master of fine arts in poetry writing so when i was starting my dissertation research i i thought i guess i thought prose poetry in chinese would be very similar to the poetry i enjoyed in english um, and had that kind of expectation and then the the book process got as i got deeper and deeper into it realized how different it was and that there was really something to do here that didn't just reproduce um you know the, the kind of poetry i enjoyed uh in the in the u.s um so yeah but it's uh, the the idea was to to do a genre study um and uh and uh, you know sort of figure out sort of figure out what was going on i guess
0: absolutely that's it's a really fascinating book and i think you tackle a very big topic essentially attempting to define prose poetry as a genre so perhaps to begin would you be able to tell me a bit more about prose poetry what exactly is it and what makes prose poetry from china unique
1: okay so um uh, prose poetry, in in a global sense, I think probably comes from uh, Baudelaire's *Petit Poème en prose*, uh, uh, which he says has a, a separate French origin. But most people, I think, encounter it through Baudelaire. Um, in China, the the term becomes uh, sort of common in the early 20th century as the Chinese are reaching out towards uh, European and other and Russian literatures. Um, And it it starts to just kind of bounce around inside Chinese culture um, and undergoes a a series of, of really complicated changes. The problem, I guess, with prose poetry is that nobody really does know what it is, um, even even today. There, there's a sense. I had a, I, I gave a talk once, and a, a colleague of mine came up and showed me a, an essay he'd written, and he said, <laughs> "Is this a prose poem?" As if, as if I would be able to tell him, you know, and he didn't know it, when he wrote it. Um, so, uh, the the difficulty of getting into the details of the genre sort of was the problem that that attracted me in the first place. Um, I would say, I guess, if I had to give a bullet. After all this um, time, that prose poetry is poetry whose margins are determined by the editor uh, rather than by the poet. So, a uh, free verse would be the poet decides how long each individual line is. Um, uh, same with and metrical verse, would be the meter determines how long the line is. But prose poetry is set by the publisher um, and the typesetter and the editor. Um, so, they determine how fat or skinny it is.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, that really sort of plays around with how we conventionally imagine the role of the poet in the production of the poem. It sort of almost displaces them to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, and I learned this actually, strangely enough, from writing a chapbook of prose poetry of my own that was published in in Brooklyn uh, while I was doing this project. My editor there decided to set the margins individually for every poem according to his feeling about the prose poem, and so it's beautiful. The the outcome is beautiful, but it's really a, a work that we did together, um, rather than something that I decided about.
0: So it's more of a collaborative process in some ways. Um, one thing I thought uh, was particularly interesting in the book was when you spoke about how, rather than being defined by form or politics, prose poetry is often defined by its process, how it foregrounds the work of its maker. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think that's a really interesting way to approach it.
1: Yeah, it comes from um, in the book. I was I, I had to make this decision very quickly um, because the the uh, there's a scholar of prose poetry in French who says uh, the the poem en prose is toujours bref, right? Or it's always brief, it always has to be short. And I was finding poems in the Chinese tradition that were much longer, um, and that were really important that that one has to sort of um, digest before you understand the genre as it exists in China. Um, And so I had to figure out, and and yet Chinese poets were also saying, these are are brief poems. Um, And the dissonance between that ended up Leading me towards a sense that the poetry is not is not necessarily brief, but it's condensed. It's undergone a sort of process that you can feel. Um, there's a bigger text somewhere in your imagination that the poem refers to that's been boiled down into a smaller shape, um, and that that started me thinking instead of about. Product about process and about the way that some processes are are invisible. Um, you don't know how long a poet worked with a rhyme dictionary to figure out his his or her sonnet, but um, some processes are you can see. Um, and uh, and prose poetry feels like to me it's because it uses other forms of prose. It's a process that you can often see, um, and uh, and that that ended up opening up uh, the specificity of the genre and the way that that you can sort of identify it. Um, even though it's quite diverse in its, in its shape.
0: Yeah, I, w- I was really struck, actually, when you spoke about how prose poetry was essentially poetry that's undergone this process of condensation that's very similar to the one found in poetry. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And this idea of how prose poetry interacts with other pieces is really fascinating. And I believe you say that's where the title, uh, Recite and Refuse, comes from this process of interacting with other works.
1: Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a sort of uh, recitation in Chinese. I think of the word Bai song, which is to memorize and recite something. So little kids are, are forced or, or trained or whatever, however you want to call it to memorize classical poetry and then recite them for their parents. It's like a piano performance or any other sort of thing you would make a little kid do to sort of impress the adults. And that sort of internalization and repetition that somehow, really specific to its context and situation right it's the little kid speaking and it's the little kid's diction and it's the little kid's sort of uh, um you know habit uh that that makes the the recited poem itself um but simultaneously it's somebody else's text so and that was the relationship that i saw with between a prose poem and other forms of prose is that they the prose poem repeats those other forms of prose in order to do something else in a new context with a new goal um, for a new purpose. Uh, and then. But that always insinuates or, or, or requires the prose poem to somehow be different from other prose, um, and you can feel that difference very sharply in, in most um, prose poems. Although in, in some cases it's actually very difficult to distinguish a socialist prose poem from propaganda or an advertisement, or um, in some cases they're very, very close to the prose that inspire them.
0: One thing you speak about is how prose poetry engages with other discourses. So things like advertising, scientific discourse, political propaganda, and so on. Can you say a little bit more about how they um, they interact with, how they engage with, or re- reuse in many ways, these other discourses?
1: Yeah, the, the the prose poets of the 1950s, which is where I really see the, the genre beginning in, in the PRC, in the People's Republic of China. Um we're instructed to do this very particular thing um, by Mao Zedong's talks at Yan'an. Um, he says, "You know, go to the go to the workers, go to the countryside, go to the farmers, and speak." their language, right? Don't speak, don't speak your language. You're intellectuals. You live in cities and you're bad, right? You have, you have bad politics and you have sort of bad history. Um, if you could go and learn another language, you could use that to speak socialism in the terms of the people who should be running socialism, the, the workers and peasants, um, and soldiers. Uh, so they have this ventriloquism baked into their literary practice in the 1950s. Um, and they ventriloquize, they, they, they speak in other, in other terms. Um, that uh to me is the sort of origin of the of the habit of uh repeating um a body of language that comes from outside uh the literary this this the narrowly literary tradition that um that we see in the you know in the pre-modern china or other places um and so it makes the form super flexible about other kinds of, of writing you can in a, I've, I found a, a prose poetry newspaper in the 1980s that was published in the 1980s during the era when commercialization was starting uh, and and sort of industry uh, for consumption was beginning and there are there's a poem there's a particular poem that I remember about the Tianli beer factory and it's just like you know like we're making beer, beer's great, beer's delicious. And it's a prose poem and it's in a, you know, prose poetry newspaper, which is a literary publication, but it's just an advertisement for this factory because that's the that was the political thing that was the instruction, that was what people were supposed to be doing at that time. That was the instruction from the center about what to care about and what was important. Um, and so the, the, the genre, because it has this process of sucking in and digesting uh, other prose forms can be, it can do that with almost any prose form. Uh, and it does over the course of this really long history you know 80 year 90 year history depending on how you count it 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 slurps up you know dozens of genres um and and there's there's quite a lot of breadth um in the way that it it actually looks
0: that's really interesting this idea of sort of engaging with almost sort of popular cultural ephemera in a way it seems to sort of demolish the boundaries between high and low art and you know High art and popular culture in a way that maybe we as Western readers might, you know, associate with something like, say, postmodernism, for example.
1: Right. Well, it's 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 communism. I mean, it's socialism. The the other part of Mao's one of the other parts of Mao's talks at Yan'an was stop um, stop making embroidery and start hauling charcoal in the snow. If that makes I, I don't know if that makes any sense in translation, but like stop being elite. Uh, Stop making things that are pretty and start doing work with culture. Um, And that means popular culture in a lot of ways. That means um, that the low is it's it's not just that there's no distinction between the high and the low. The low is better and the low is more important uh, for for at least for official prose poetry um, and for official writing in general.
0: That's really fascinating. And I think in some ways that almost recalls what was happening in, say, the Soviet Union with, you know, socialist realism. Is there a relationship there between the two literary forms?
1: Yeah, I think I think a, a reasonably strong relationship. The first um, some of the first prose poems that were translated into Chinese were arguably were um, by Turgenev. And uh, although they were published as fiction um, in, in Chinese, um, the sense that um, uh, what that prose poetry was a was a rebellious form that knocked down the elitist structures of uh, meter and verse um, that that traditional poetry had, that feeling was very attractive to early. And, and even before the, the, the CCP came into power, there are lots and lots of socialist writers. And um, there's an essay where uh, Lu Xun, the, the great sort of early 20th century Chinese realist, points at Baudelaire and says, and says, he's a fake revolutionary. He's not quite revolutionary enough, and we can do better. Um, and his collection that in, includes prose poetry actually criticizes Baudelaire's Elitism um, in a, a poem called "The Dog's Retort." So he answers a specific poem by by Baudelaire and sort of goes further uh, in a in a way that's really fascinating. So I think the the Russian model and the model of of sort of state communism and state socialism is really important uh, to the early Chinese uh, prose poets, even even as it be, and and then becomes much less important to later Chinese prose poets.
0: So speaking of early Chinese prose poets. To when do you trace the origins of prose poetry? I know this is something that there's been some debate about, but in terms of Chinese po- prose poetry, when exactly does that begin and what does it arise out of?
1: So the standard PRC history, I mean, the, the people who I respect the most who write about prose poetry inside China, in Chinese, uh, all pick a spot somewhere around 1905, 1910, that uh, in which the term first appears, the, the direct translation of the term, which is someone in Chinese, um, first appears in sort of Chinese writing. Um, and they say, that's the start. And then we have a, um, a sort of development from that, that point. From my perspective, those early experiments are are simply experiments, and they don't they don't actually make any sense as a genre. There's just, it's just a term, um, an appellation rather than a practice, I think. Um, the first use of the term in Chinese publication was a, a poet, an experimental poet named Liu Nong, who translated a piece from Vanity Fair um, in which an Indian singer named Ratan Devi uh, sings a song and Vanity Fair describes the lyrics of the song as being like a prose poem. Liu Bannon gets it wrong and translates the piece as Ratan Devi sang a prose poem. Um, and this then persists inside the Chinese, the early Chinese prose poetry tradition as in some ways the sort of like an early prose poem, right, by Ratan Devi. So you get that even in histories today. Sometimes people will, will cite that poem as an influential early piece of prose poetry, even though it was never translated into Chinese. It wasn't a prose poem. It was just a song. And this sort of um, chaos, I think generative chaos, because Leo Banong actually wrote um, really fascinating poems or, or, or things in prose that we would now maybe call prose poems. Um, that generative chaos goes on for quite a while. Uh, and it's really, in my mind, the 1950s when poetry is under real concerted threat from uh, official uh, ideological discourses. So in, in the 50s, it's not really that safe to be a um, a poet or a writer. Um, Wang Shui, uh, it, early in the Yan'an period, is, is chopped up and thrown into a well. And it, it, th- and people get the sense that like this is a dangerous hobby, right? It's a dangerous profession. Um, and so they need to be very clear about what is orthodox socialist writing. And they make their, the the prose poets of the 1950s do that by defining the genre very, very clearly. Um, That to me is the influential moment of definition and the the moment in which a whole big cloud of disparate um, poetic practices, including people who are clearly writing free verse and calling it prose poetry, and also people who are calling, you know, regular prose prose poetry, that, that practice then coalesces into a very, very specific lineage. Um, in which not only can you see the poems become very similar but the same people are circulating through um, th- through all of the different places where you find prose poetry they're all affiliated with the same two, three four writers uh, after the 1950s uh, and so to me that's the that's the core of the the genre as we understand it today, or as we feel it today, um, even if we don't, even with, even if I'm the only person who understands it that way, uh, I think it's, I, that's my, that's my take on it.
0: So you spoke a bit there about the idea of defining orthodox prose poetry, and I find this idea of orthodox poetry very interesting. Do you think that this idea of adhering to an orthodoxy inhibits creativity, or does it maybe engender a different type of creativity?
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's very complicated. Um, I think that we have different discourses of creativity, and I think that, yeah, I mean, the, I think that there's a, there's a model that that still remains even after all this time of the poet as the innovator, right? So, like an avant-garde poet uh, makes something out of nothing; uh, they 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 dream something or they invent it. I don't think that that's actually true in terms of avant-garde poetry. Even even a poet that I love, like a contemporary poet that I love, like Kaveh Akbar, right? He works in a tradition, right? He reads extensively, right? And he's, you know, as as good as he is at his at his job at his at creating. Um, he's creating from from forms from previously extant art. We I think we undersell that inside the West, and we oversell the way in which. Communist prose poets and Orthodox prose poets—people who were trying to fit into a system—had to innovate in order to stay safe, in order to sort of survive inside the system that they were experiencing. Um, they had to reinvent themselves, and they had to invent, you know, themselves inside a very specific discourse. It's—it feels more like maybe to a Western reader, problem solving. Um, but I will say that there was nothing so strange as going to prose poetry magazine in Yang Hunan in a, in a you know, in a very small, in a comparatively small town um, and seeing, you know, a staff of eight people run a national magazine out of, a, you know, the third floor of the city museum. Um, it was just, they had fixed, they had created so many structures and systems that were so specific to their context that it felt like a very creative space to me. Um, even though we wouldn't, you know, avant-garde poets would, would probably turn up their noses at that particular brand of creativity. Um, I think it's related. I mean, I think it's related to what what poets in the West do.
0: I think so. I mean, every poet is really working within some kind of framework, within some kind of tradition. And I think perhaps the strictures of this kind of orthodoxy, it does encourage a certain degree of creativity, as you said, in terms of finding ways to express oneself within those confines.
1: Yeah. And to loop that back, I mean, Chinese... The the Western study of Chinese poetry has this one really, really very specific and important um, habit that I think is really – that I find just endlessly intellectually stimulating, which is the, the tradition of fieldwork, of um, the sociology of literature, of Bourdieu, and of going there and being like personally, individually involved in – the scenes that you, because for, for contemporary poetry, sometimes publication is hard to get to. And sometimes poets say more in person than they can say in print. So we have this big incentive to go see the scene, you know, the place, the thing that's happening and Chinese contemporary Chinese poetry also has this aesthetic. It's called Zai Chang. It's a on the scene aesthetic, right? So you have to be there, um, to do this stuff. And those, the habits that are required, for that kind of study require, you know, habits from anthropology, they require a certain kind of note taking, they require, and all this, I think, would be incredibly useful to, to apply to American contemporary poetry. I see people who are, I've seen more than one scholar who's gotten, of Chinese poetry, who's gotten really interested in the United States MFA system, um, or the way in which the, the academic institution affects Contemporary Western poetry, um, on not just on a big level, but on a micro level, how does the contest structure work? Most first books in American poetry are published, and I think it might be the same way in Britain. Is is most first books are published in um, in contests? You pay to enter a contest, and this is a deeply effective, um, a, a deeply transformational structure that that determines what poetry gets published and what doesn't. But we don't really have contemporary poetry scholars in in the West embedded in those. Scenes in the same way they're they're siloed in the creative writing department, um, and so so the the way that we do things in in the study of contemporary Chinese poetry, I think is um, I would love to 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 read that about poetry in other places, um, but uh, but you do learn so much by simply being present at the magazine, by being at the dinner, um, by hearing what, what it is that people care about and what people talk about.
0: So it seems like your research methodology is really multidisciplinary in a way. It really kind of, you know, it reaches across disciplines, which is something that's really fascinating. I think at one point in the book, you discuss having a blog that you, you gather kind of feedback from.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think. Uh, feature- oh no no! I mean, I definitely. I mean, and this is a, a maybe a DH habit is is um, read the comments on every blog that that I <laughs> um, because you you learn a lot from the the back and forth and the the Chinese blogosphere for a little while in in the early 2000s was really vigorous. So I never got to the point where I was running my own blog because you it's it's almost required to run your own site to get the updates you want. But uh, but yeah, it's one of those habits of sort of trying to be embedded a little bit, trying to be connected. Uh,
0: so there's an aspect of digital humanities as well in your work.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would like to to be more, it's quite complicated in, in China now to do that kind of work for a literary scholar. So I know a writer because, because things appear and disappear and they work very quickly uh, and it's hard to archive or, or, Uh, trust that something that's that's there now will be there later it's also almost impossible to find out who's how many people are reading each kind of uh digital product um but the the um yeah, the, the and I'll give an example. I have a I have a friend who runs a blog. He's a poet. And he runs a blog, and uh, he has a, a, a code word, a, a two word English phrase that he puts on the homepage of every one of his blogs because they go up and down so fast and they get they get cancelled or blocked or or erased um, that you just Google that individual or or you use Baidu in in China, um, you search for that individual phrase and you find his whatever iteration of his blog is now present is now uh, acceptable. Does that make sense? He has to move between services so fast that it's really um, quite restrictive um, and it makes study incredibly difficult. The nice thing about nice, I mean, we say nice, but the nice thing about Orthodox poets is they don't have this problem. So their web presences are a little bit more stable, but then they, they become much more social and much less intellectual in some ways. And the uh, um, the posts that happen are really about connecting with people and 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 art feel more like social media and less like publication.
0: that's really fascinating. The other aspect of your work I found quite interesting, of course, is the translation aspect because you do translate so much work that hasn't appeared in the West before. And I found one particularly interesting thing in your book was when you referenced a nineteenth century translator, I think named Yan Fu. yeah, and um he, he said that translations should have fidelity, fluency, and elegance. And I thought this idea of foregrounding translation was incredibly interesting, because I'd like to hear a little bit more about your translation process, how you went about it, and what your goals were.
1: There's a an argument to be made, maybe, that everybody who's in area studies or people who work transculturally, um, and I just, I heard this the um, at the American Comparative Literature Conference this last weekend as well, they have this ethic as well, that we're, we're always translators and that really first and foremost, we're all translators. Even if what you're doing is um, analysis or explication, explication du text, or you know if you're interested in hermeneutics like I am, that, that's, that you're still translating, that somehow um, there's no way to, to escape that. So I always came into the field knowing that translation was going to be Important and the way that I read when I was reading from the from the start was really looking for work that would that would translate in a way that was um, instead of being sort of marketable was a translate work that would translate in a way that was educational work that would translate in a way that was either representative or um, pro- provided a provocation um, for readers and I really instead of thinking very much about what is real and what, what do things look like, uh, in, in the PRC, that's, that's important. But the way that I get to that question is how can I translate the things that are there to here? Because honestly, the, this, this book is, uh, there are lots of parts of it that I don't think can be published in the, in the People's Republic of China. It's really an American, it's really a book for American and, and other English speaking markets. There's, there's no, you know, there's, there's, there's a limit on this. It's, potential circulation inside, uh, the PRC. So, so I really have to be intercultural and that interculturality is, I think comes through in, in the practice of translation. So, so when I I think about Yan Fu or, or other kinds of translation theory, I think of those as general scholarly ethics in my field or general scholarly practices in my field. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I put a lot of time into translating. It's hard to sell it sometimes to university deans as a really important thing. Uh, but it doesn't, uh, it, it happens nonetheless. So it, it doesn't matter if they like it or not, we have to do it. Um, and it's, uh, and it's a joy. I mean, it's its the most fun part in a lot of ways, um, to, to get into a poem at that level of detail. I think uh, the secret or maybe the open secret, or maybe actually, the thing that everybody knows that nobody is willing to say in the study of contemporary poetry is that nobody really understands contemporary poetry and that most contemporary poems, even great poems, um, are very, very, very difficult to grasp uh, and quite subjective and, and really open questions in a lot of different challenging ways. And translation requires you to really get in to the question of interpretation at a level that is uh, more intimate than any other act of reading, in in my opinion. Uh, so, and and that means in some cases giving up, like saying this is a mystery to me, or this was intended to be a mystery, or, uh, or, you know, I, I'll do the best translation I can do, but another one will then come appear to supplant mine. Um, and I find all of that an indication that that I'm on the right track, that I'm doing what should be done. The idea that it's it's actually a little bit too hard to do consistently and and perfectly. Um, so yeah and translation opens those challenges to me uh so it's it's been a big part of my scholarly practice of
0: course and could you say a little bit about the structure of the book i think it's really interesting how you move from orthodox to semi-orthodox to unorthodox it gives the impression that there's something of a journey in your analysis
1: yeah it's uh it's it's sub portions of the the genre and sort of groups inside the bigger genre but it's also a historicizer so the the the, ortho, the period during which orthodox prose poetry was most important was this sort of 1950s generative moment of the entire form. And then it, its afterlife goes up to the present. Um, but I, I've, I put that first because it has this sort of foundational quality. Um, and then we see, as, as happened, I think, to a lot of artists at the end of the 1980s when Tiananmen happens, a lot of people just walk away from official positions. Uh, they don't want to write for the state anymore. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem right to them anymore. And Leo Taifu, who I talk about in chapter four is one of those writers who just, he just, you know, he's on the outs all of a sudden he can't, he can't get Orthodox work published. And so he does, he starts doing something else. Um, and then after the, the 1989, you get a group of people who are just committedly outside the, the official structures of literature. Um, and, and they write in their own way and they write in, in often, often in terms of how are we, how are we, placing ourselves against the the system um, or outside the system uh, they take that position in the in the field so and the 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 physical the strange physical thing that happened I guess I, I call it physical but I guess the embodied part of it is that I went as a as a graduate student to the PRC and I went to Beijing University which is the sort of co- like heart of um, literary study and the faculty who were, Poets and who were uh, sort of contemporary avant-garde poets all sort of turned up their noses at, at prose poetry. They said, "Why would you study that? It's not important. We don't care about it." Um, and some of the faculty who were less, I think, less avant-garde, who were less outside of the conceptually outside of the literary system. Um, Sort of secretly kind of tip me off to a couple of people that I might talk to or that I might be interested in. And those people were connected to official scenes. So there's so little mixing um, uh, in between the people who work for this, who, who are literally paid by the state, who write poetry inside a system um, that relies on state funding, and people who are writing outside of that system. They really try to avoid each other uh, in a lot of ways. And that's an that's a interpretational problem for a. Um, a scholar because you need to make you need to connect with both of those groups and you need to kind of embed yourself in both of those scenes Um, even though they're they're always kind of talking crap about their opposite their perceived opposition and and telling you they don't exist you know
0: yeah absolutely um so another thing i thought was interesting um that i'd love to hear a bit more about is this idea of modeling prose poetry communities on the structures of the communist party I found that very interesting. How does that work, and how does that impact the poetry?
1: Yeah, the the so in the nineteen fifties during this period, there, there's this one year. So Mao Zedong says, uh, all of a sudden, kind of uh, as a as a s- sort of broad cultural movement, that people should be able to criticize the party. And uh, this is nineteen fifty seven, uh, and he he says, you know, go go at it. Just say what you're feeling, right? Get let a let a a uh, hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend, he says. And uh, there's this brief moment where you can do a kind of publication that's a little bit different than things that have been happening before. And then after about 11 months, he's like, nah, forget it. That's, that was a bad idea. And he starts to sort of uh, attack the people who had spoken up during this period. So there's this real defensive posture for the artist. And one of the things that the the prose poets of that period do is they model themselves on a um, this sort of Structural origins of the party, and they they paint themselves as a subset of the party. So you get a a, a prose poetry society. <laughs> so the early communists were were in study groups where they would study Marxism together um, during the during before the revolution, during the revolution. And so prose poets form those study groups to study prose poetry, um, and then that evolves in the in the 1980s when prose poetry becomes okay again and really uh, sort of gains the support of the Dung administration um, that evolves into what looks very much like a version of the uh, Chinese Writers Association, which is a state organ that hierarchizes and organizes writing life and makes sure that writers get paid, gives them outlets for publication, restricts them from doing things that maybe the party doesn't want, uh, subjects them to oversight, uh, rewards them for being overseen. uh, And the Prose poetry creates a parallel sort of shadow version of that. So you have the national prose poetry study group, you have branch groups in different regions, uh, and you have subgroups inside those branch groups uh, in a way that looks like this sort of pyramidal structure of the the A of the party and B of the, the writers association. And they do this, I think, to make the argument that they're they're good socialists, which they are. Um, they're really they really care about a, a lot of them. Really, really do support the the state and its uh, its desires and needs and and uh, and that this is a, a way that they sort of fit into it, um, they're like a puzzle piece. Uh, the way that that affects poems is is complicated. There's a there's a sense in which there's a certain kind of logic to the creation of a subgroup. So if you're, if you're, if you're 21 and you want to be a prose poet for whatever reason, I don't, I'm not sure why that happens, but some, it it does happen. Um, one of the ways to become an important prose poet is to create a subcategory for yourself that you're going to be in charge of to be the chairman of that subcategory. So, and you can, you know, there's a a period in the eighties where they're doing reportage prose poetry, um, Which is like it's kind of like journalistic-y, but it's also very lyrical. Um uh, there's a there's a guy who starts doing classical prose poetry, like classically inspired prose poetry, and he's considered sort of um, or at least I've seen essays saying, Oh, he invented this this form of of prose poetry. Um and those that chairmanship, that micro-chairmanship, um is one of the ways that you fit into this sort of ever-expanding pyramid. Um and so people are trying to sort of sub uh, genreize uh, uh, over and over and over again. The other thing that it, that happens is that you—it's a pyramid, right? I mean, it's a pyramidal structure, but it's also a pyramid scheme where the couple of poets at the top are promising uh, resources and representation and attention to people at the bottom. But at some point, the the system is big enough that there's really nothing in it for a you know for a. A person at the bottom, and so you have this moment in the '80s where the pyramid starts to grow very, very quickly, and they call it the prose poetry fever, and uh, the and uh, and everybody's doing it, and you can and it's in all the magazines, and all the popular magazines have it, and and uh, for a moment there's there's just this broad expansion, and then it and then it collapses as pyramid schemes do, um, because there's really no profit in it. There's no um, there are no people left to be beneath. The, the new chairmans of prose poetry. Um, and I think that comes from this, this pyramidal system. Uh, the, this, the party has a, has a tax base. They have something at the bottom that they can kind of manage. There's a, there's a group of, of non-participants at the bottom that, that are um, to be, uh, to be controlled and to be, to be rewarded that, that create rewards, they create, they generate wealth, but that doesn't exist for prose poets. There's, there's really no bottom rung of, a population—it's—it's just—it's all participants all the way down, and so at some point it just—it just kind of dries up and, and floats away, which is one of the reasons why the the professors at Beijing University are like, "This is over, right? This is this this scene has already ended," um, uh, because the, after the the fever, it just it just kind of, um, and I think that that's also the pyramidal structure, um, that that's the the influence of that that there's a there's a moment for prose post-po- official prose poetry um, in the eighties that never comes back.
0: That's really interesting. Um, Another point I wanted to bring up was the cultural revolution, because you point out that the cultural revolution very much transformed attitudes towards prose poetry. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how exactly the cultural revolution impacted prose poetry in China, considering it was such a monumental event.
1: The Prose poetry gets a, because it's that, that moment in the 50s where there's this brief sort of chance to experiment. Uh, with loyalty, right? I mean, which is to say, and we're not talking about radical experiments. We're talking about people trying to be loyal to the party in a new way in 1957. Um, that moment and the ability to publish a couple of poetic texts in that moment before the, right before the, the crackdown that would then sort of turn into the cultural revolution. Um, that means that the group of partially independent loyalists to the party, uh, that gets all this. That gets into all this trouble in the in the Cultural Revolution. Which one of the targets of the Cultural Revolution is the mid-level cadre, the the person who works for the state, uh, considers themselves a communist, but somehow has lost their way and become uh, insufficiently revolutionary. So that that middle of the the party, that middle of the party infrastructure, really gets criticized a lot during the the Cultural Revolution and 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 suffers a great deal. So these people who are like Ke Lan and Guo Feng, who are, are prose poets in the fifties, they both get in trouble for writing explicitly loyal work. Right? Um, that that authenticizes them in a certain way, so that when the Cultural Revolution ends and it's okay to write again, and but and you have a new administration, Deng Xiaoping, the the leader who comes into power after Mao dies and after the Cultural Revolution is is has ended, um, Deng is. Is in that group of people who got who got criticized for being loyal in the wrong way uh, during the Cultural Revolution, and when he comes back into power, he sweeps um, all of these mid-level cadres back into power with him. And that includes all of the prose poets. So all of a sudden there's all of this funding for, for prose poetry. Um, and they, they can, they can start enterprises, they can start associations, they can travel, they can do all this stuff. Uh, and this helps feed this sort of fever that happens. um, because it's, it's now it's an orth, now it's an orthodox for this particular group. It's not orthodox for the, the Maoists, but it's orthodox for the Dungists. Um, and that means that it, it sort of, it has this sort of fertile ground to take root in. Um, and it also, I think it also creates a certain level of, as official scenes go, as official poetry goes, um, and there's a lot of worse official poetry out there. I'm not saying this is great work, but it's there's a lot of worse official poetry out there. It does make, I think it does make people a little bit, um, I don't want to say cynical, but they 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 retain their independence and they have a discourse of independence from other genres, from other groups. Uh, and one of the things that you can't do and be published in prose poetry magazine is look like you're not writing prose poetry. They're very, they, they, they uh, police that boundary very clearly because they want to be separate um, because it's, it's worked for them in the past, I think. Um, so in, a lot of this comes from, from experiences that people can't talk about in the, in the 1960s. It's really hard to research um, what happened to prose poets in the, in the 60s because they don't want to talk about it. Uh, and it's not okay to publish, so you don't have a lot of printed sources. Um, they'd much rather talk about the 80s, which was a much better time for them.
0: So in chapter four, you talk quite a bit about uh, Lu Fu. Am I pronouncing that? Lu Fu yeah. Uh, yeah. Could you say a little bit more about his position in the canon of Chinese prose poetry, and perhaps a little bit about his exile as well, and how that impacted his work?
1: Yeah, he drops right out of the canon. It's it's actually almost comic. Um, I talk about the so he he's a. a a prose poet who is very well respected. He's also an intellectual and a and a philosopher and a, a literary critic and a lot of other things. And his 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 other intellectual work now is really how people think of him. They think of him as a a great thinker and a sort of um, liberal humanist and a, a kind of. Uh, um, you know, he has this, this book that he wrote called Farewell to Revolution. Uh, and, and this is, this is sort of his, his reputation in Chinese circles, but in the eighties, he was also a, a quite well-respected prose poet with, a um, you know, six or seven collections and, uh, an anthology of his own and, and all this, um, in 1989, his daughter, Liu Jinmei, who's also a very, uh, um, a really well-respected and powerful scholar. Um, she is in, uh, uh, she's in, at Tiananmen and, uh, and he writes a very mild essay where he quotes the great writer Lu Xun, um, saying, uh, right? uh, let's, let's, let's take care of the children, right? Don't hurt the children, the people who are in the square protesting against the, the Dung government. Um, this is a, you know, not really, I think in anybody's estimation, a political crime or a, an act of resistance against the state. It's a sort of, you know, it's a father's plea about, about his family. Um, but it means that he can't go back to China um, after the 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 demonstration at Tiananmen is is put down. He can't go back, and uh, and so he is, and he's restricted from access to his literary market, the group of people who have been reading his poems, who understand how to read his poems, uh, and who uh, and the, the the official sort of structures that that allowed that poetry to be the way that it was in the first place. And he changes. he, he starts writing prose. He starts writing uh, Zalin, a different a sort of prose essay form and uh, starts printing in other outlets. And you can see his, you know, his ideology remains. Th- well, you know, his ideology changes, his, his, his literary practice changes. And it becomes clear that the official prose poet or the prose poet who can be published in official circles really depends on that community as well as uh, on a certain model of literary production um, he starts to to obtain he starts to he starts to gain this sort of truth telling straight talk uh, uh, he has a, a, a piece that I talk about called, I won't dress up anymore, right? He's not going to put on a fake army uniform. He's not going to put on a fake, fake clothing. He's going to say what he really thinks. And that position actually prevents him from writing prose poetry, which is always dressing itself up in somebody else's language, who's, which is always pretending to be something that it's not so that it can do the thing that it wants to do. And when he, when he leaves the country and he has to sub- suddenly speak to people who, who are outside of his, his, you know cultural milieu, um, the and he's very successful publishing in Hong Kong. He publishes many books in Hong Kong, um, but he has to he has to be different. He he doesn't he can no longer write the kind of prose poetry that he's writing in the in the PRC. Um, and so I, I call him semi orthodox because he really makes a transition from a, a prose poet that's recognizable as in the tradition of the '50s poets to something entirely different. Um, and that exit is I think. Uh, representative of what happens to lots of poets who are participating in official scenes in the eighties is that they, they make their own exits in lots and lots of different ways. Um, And it's part because they lose, they lose a certain amount of faith in the, the, the value of being a Chinese writer that cooperates with the state. They don't care to do it anymore. Um, And I think, I think for him, he was, he was, he still cared to do it, but he was not allowed to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, he's a fascinating figure, though, and I, I did—I got to do interviews with him. He's—he's a—you know—he has a kind of a Fujian accent, um, so it was—it was really the, one of the greatest language challenges of my life. But he was such a fascinating person that—that that, uh, it was worth every minute of of hard work. He was really generous with his time.
0: That's a fantastic—I suppose almost resource in a way that you were able to gain access to such influential writers. Um, so that's really astounding, and I think it comes across in many of the insights in the book itself. I guess um, I guess another thing I wanted to ask you about was probably one of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, you have this really stunning translation of the poem Hanging Coffin, which I think is just absolutely amazing. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the importance of that poem. Uh, for example, you note that it's very much monumental. And a lot of prose poems do tend to be suppose maybe a little bit shorter so do you think it's playing a bit with a form of prose poetry or sort of i guess pushing up the boundaries of what prose poetry can be
1: yeah it's a it's a and this is the the great i mean to me having done all of this work with official scenes and poems that are they really are minor they have a minor um in some ways Attitude. Even if they do really important cultural work, uh, official prose poems are, are trying to sort of make the point that they're not such a big deal. Um, when O Yang violates that, he violates it enormously. Um, it, with with uh, with real, I think, bravado and uh, and and you know, sort of, I think, brave arrogance. Almost, he he steps outside and he he he's, he writes a poem that is what is six thousand characters long. It's enormous and and attacking not just the the sort of authoritarianism of Mao Zedong, but the entire imperial system. He attacks the the Chinese cultural practice of root seeking, which looks uh, tries to look into history to figure out the origins and particular character and um, kind of beating heart of Chinese civilization, uh, which is very popular in the 1980s. Sort of, uh, let's look back at our roots. You know, we've had this bad experience with the Cultural Revolution, during which we destroyed a lot of historical um, material and we turned away from the, the past and now let's go back to the past and try to figure out how to regain our, you know, our, our balance, our, ourselves. Um, he takes that to its logical conclusion and, and paints it as empty as the, as the inside of a coffin. Um, and, and in such a huge way that it, it sort of forecloses, it attempts to foreclose any possible, um, Reference to the historical record and to the imperial period as a um, as a source of of life or hope, right? Um, yeah, and so the the um, it does the the way that he wrote it is is actually also fascinating. He was uh, you know prevented from reading books, uh, uh, contemporary books during the Cultural Revolution when he was growing up as a child, and he. Uh, instead, he, his father had a um, had a pass to read classical literature um, because of his job, and so he would get just wheelbarrows full of of, of ancient books, right? Classical China, books in classical Chinese, which is very different from modern Chinese, and so he's high, he was high, became highly literate in classical Chinese. And then when the the period of restriction ended and one could get um, modern, contemporary books and foreign books, he goes wild and he starts reading all this stuff. He sees. Uh, to hear him tell it, he saw one page of a anthology of Nobel prize winners, um, in which, uh, there was a translation. It was Taiwanese, I think, uh, tra- Taiwanese translation of Saint-Jean Paris's Anabasis, which is a poem that won the, um, a, a poet that won the Nobel prize in the, in the fifties or sixties. And he sees one page of it and it's in this archaic diction and it's in prose. And he thinks, oh, I'm just going to write that. Um, and he doesn't, really care what the poem is about he just gets this one sort of uh satisfying connection where it's like we're gonna we're gonna take classical poetics and classical writing we're gonna put it in a really modern form um and that generates the sort of uh infrastructure of the poem um and this is something that the book uh, uh it's one of the little lacunae possibly in the book is that the the unorthodox prose poets take their materials from everywhere. They're not they're not self identified inheritors of the tradition of orthodox prose poetry. They're not good communists. They're reading everything and they're 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 grabbing material from wherever they can find it uh, in a way that often violates the expectations of the orthodox poets. Um, and so so uh, I don't think Ouyang Jianghu cares at all about the, the prose poetry scene or the people who care about prose poetry. Um, they care about him, but he doesn't. He doesn't know that they're there. He's doing he's doing what he needs to do to sort of survive the 1980s. Um, And what what's left is this huge uh, document um, uh, that I think to this day, people scratch their heads about because it's so overwhelming in its way.
0: Do you think that poem then sort of by virtue of its length kind of problematizes the notion of prose poetry or problematizes the genre in some way?
1: Yeah, I think it puts I think it puts some of the other I think it puts the the position of the of the more obedient poet kind of to shame that it calls them out as um you know essentially endlessly trying to pursue this authority this imperial you can call it imperial or socialist or centralized or authoritarian that there's this dream or desire to go back to a unitary source of power and meaning uh that is you know that's an endless hamster wheel in which the uh many other poets are running um and uh and yeah i think it i think it i think it violates those those expectations and it's one of the reasons why it's very hard to um for people to study today i think is that it, it it's actually a little bit uncomfortable um to think that uh even even for me in my world with my structure of authority and my idea of the past and um you know my own past or the idea that we'll look back and we'll learn something that we can then pull into the future, uh, it, it calls that out. And, it, and it, it, uh, it, it insists that you live in the present um, in some ways.
0: I think that poem has some incredibly striking, incredibly beautiful imagery. And another poem where I think the imagery was particularly striking was the poem Winter Sweet.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And one thing that really struck me when you were speaking about that poem was that when it was first published in Prose Poetry Magazine, in the women's section, it was published in a section called Female World, which I thought was just very interesting. But this got me thinking a little bit about gender dynamics. And I was wondering if you could maybe tell me a little bit about the role that gender plays within the prose poetry movement, or does it play a role?
1: In Inside Orthodox Poetry, there is a what there is a subcategory for for female writers, um, which both places them right and gives them a certain amount of space and makes them subordinate to the structure at large. Chinese poetry the the, the worst part I think from maybe for me personally about Chinese contemporary Chinese poetry Chinese poetry after the um, after forty nine is that it's it's misogynist it's male dominated. There are no um, there are some famous Female poets. There's some important female poets uh, like Bing Xin, who I talk about in the book. Um, they are very, very few, and uh, the structure as it works inside and outside of the avant-garde, um, they're not exempt from this. Uh, really, sees woman's writing, um, and I, that's that. There's scare quotes around that. If you could see me, I'm, I'm I have a sarcastic sneer on my on my lips. Woman's writing is a is a is a category is a, is an oddity. Um, and maybe you, you throw some in, in your magazine and maybe you don't, um, maybe there's a space at the table for a female poet and maybe there's not, um, the, uh, and I think that the, in inside the Orthodox scene, you can see this as the way that this infrastructure, kind of prevents alterity from gaining power. You can be different inside the structure. You sort of have to be different as a young person inside the structure of, of Orthodox prose poetry, but you're never gonna be different and better. You're never gonna be different and a leader um, at the same time. You have to be at the core of the tradition in order to exert power over it. Um, in the avant-garde, I think that, I think that the the misogyny and the, the male orientation of the, of of poetry is a, is a concept of the future, um, in some way that the, um, feminized, uh, uh, affective labor of, uh, the past, the, the way in which community and, uh, connections and feelings were, were important in, you know, in, in, in earlier periods in, in life or in, in pre-modern or in non-industrial life is being replaced with, with concept and philosophy and, uh, you know, a sort of, uh, emotionless futurity in which experimentation in form and, and style replaces some kind of perceived, uh, softness or, um, or, you know, or, or emotion or heart, um, And so part of the deal about becoming the future is, is keeping the women out of it. Um, I don't, I can't say that I understand it. I mean, this is a theory. I can't say that I understand it completely. And I know that some of it is just traditional misogyny that's existed in Chinese culture for a long time, which has existed in American culture for a long time. Um, But it is one of the conceptual problems that I feel like I'm still wrestling with the This book is, is, uh, you know, I think there are two or three female poets in it, you know, and, uh, um, and that's that's astonishingly low. I mean, if you were looking at other poetic scenes in other, even in even in Japan or another, you know, regional, uh, uh, you know, literary structures, there would be many more. Um, and so the the question of I think the question of gender remains open for a lot of researchers, myself included. Um, and uh, and this was just the first step that I'm that I want to take on a, a, a longer examination of why these things are as they are, and. And if if anything can be done, then what can be done to change that? To to you know represent voices of women in in the Chinese tradition better in translation and and in a in the transnational conversation. So
0: just as you were speaking there, you touched on the idea of the future, and I guess maybe that's where I'd like to start wrapping things up. What do you think the future of Chinese prose poetry is? Where do you think it's going? What do you think is in store for the movement?
1: Yeah, that's where the the book ends a little bit. Is that I. I think that one of the... So the, the prose poetry fever is over. The magazines that print prose, prose poetry that have really high circulation are increasingly focused on education and um, middle school and high school writing. Um, the, and you have this generation of prose poets now who write in prose. They're poets, they write in prose, but they don't really identify with the tradition of... The Chinese tradition of prose poetry. They really identify with... The foreign tradition of prose poetry, or identify with the uh, the teens and twenties sort of chaos prose poetry, where you, you it didn't really have any rules, and there was all sorts of there were all sorts of heterogeneous uh, ways to produce it. And I think that they're I think that they 've gained the upper hand. I think that they 're going to be the way that we read uh, prose poetry as we go into the future, um, and that these will be the important voices is is people like Sichuan, who 's the, the last um, the last half chapter of the of the book um, and I think that that means that the orthodox history of prose poetry is going to be implicit rather than explicit as we move forward that the the way that Prose poetry in the future will define itself against orthodox prose poetry and against socialist prose poetry as a as a sort of negative past um, is going to um, maybe go unremarked upon um, uh, you know outside of this outside of this book um, that there will be the sort of uh, you know the defeated other party that we don't talk about but the, whose whose structures and habits we avoid um, uh, in the same way that maybe the avant-garde thinks of femininity as not the future, then uh, it will also think of socialist prose poetry as not the future, and the future being, leaving that behind, right? Um, uh, uh, That having been said, I, I think that these the poems that I'm seeing now, and the interest that I'm seeing in prose poetry now, um, in poets like Shi and and others, um, Chen Dongdong, who I start the book with, um, is a you know is a really good poet from the '90s and, and early 2000s, who's you know is writing in prose. Um, uh, that the habits of reading, uh, I think, will will move forward because people really are writing poetry and prose. Now they're writing a great deal of it. Um, and they're using these structures of, of the transformation of other prose genres and the, the, um, digestion of other prose genres that, that, uh, that we, that to me are, are totally familiar from the whole 20th century tradition. Um, and it's, it's really, it feels like a refreshing, um, like, uh, like calling it a revolution, calling it new is really good for and creates space for new kinds of experimentation and new kinds of writing, and I think that's happening. You know, every month I see new stuff uh, continuously, um, and uh, and it's and it's exciting. You know, it's really it's it's fun to watch.
0: Absolutely, it must be so wonderful to work with something that is so dynamic. I feel at this point, I think we've probably taken up enough of your time. So I'm going to start, I'm going to wrap things up, but I'd love to know, are you working working on anything at the moment or do you know what your next um, project is going to be?
1: That, that chapter where we, where I talked about the sort of cultural forms and poetic forms and the sort of interplay between the two, um, has led me to a project where I think about, uh, poetic restriction and restraint, uh, in its relationship to social and political restriction and restraint. Um, and I'm just starting to sort of, I just gave the first paper from the project. The first piece uh, that's derived from it will come out hopefully next year. Um, and I, I want to think about the ways in which uh, I read Carolyn Levine's really excellent book, Forms, as uh, uh, English literature. I think it's 19th century. Um, and, and I want to think about the way that the position of the lyric speaker and the position of the poet um, as a, a person who has the liberty to speak uh, affects the way that we think about speech more broadly, um, inside in, in culture. Um, and, uh, and I'm sort of troubling those issues, uh, through the work of poets from the eighties and nineties. Um, so that's what I'm kind of m- muddling through right now. It's really early in the project yet.
0: Fantastic. And before I say goodbye, I just want—is uh, there anything else that you'd like to say about the book, or anything else that you'd like to make the listeners aware of? Um,
1: no, this was a really thorough conversation. I do want to thank you for for your time and attention, and for reading the book and for saying all the nice things about it. Um, it's it's poetry research, I think, is important, but not doesn't circulate as much as it could. Um, and I'm I'm really grateful for the the time uh, and the attention. Uh, so thank you very much, Miranda. This was, really, this was a really wonderful conversation.
0: It was absolutely a pleasure speaking to you. I think you're bringing research that may not necessarily be out there in the academic community in the West to a much broader audience. So I think for that reason, the book is extremely valuable. And I think not just to scholars of Chinese or Asian literature, but I think to poetry scholars in general, it's something that can provide a lot of insights into the ways in which prose poetry is being used and being transformed in different cultures. So it's an absolutely wonderful book that's Recite and Refuse Contemporary Chinese Prose Poetry by Nick Admussen. So I just wanted to say thank you again, Nick. And it was absolutely wonderful speaking to you.
1: It's my pleasure.